appreciate Jeff being here with us, using his vacation time to help lead us in worship. Appreciate you all being here today. Hope you all had a great Christmas celebration, quality time with the family. Hope you all got the gifts that you wanted. Uh, but more than that, I hope your heart rejoiced in our Lord and Savior and in the gospel. And today, uh, Pastor Joe McKeever pointed out what uh, he calls a bit of a sadness or, or a lull on December 26th, the day after Christmas. There's all this excitement, this buildup, this expectation. There's Christmas, and then the next day is kind of a bit of just a, a lull, a sadness. And this is what he said. He said, if Christmas is all about toys and gifts, then December 26th will be a letdown. If Christmas is about partying and drinking, December 26th will be a hangover. If Christmas is about family, December 26th will be a mean separation. But, he said, if Christmas is all about the arrival of the Messiah, then December 26th is another day to celebrate his love, his glory, his victory, his presence, his salvation, and to anticipate his promises. So that's why we're here today. Thank you for being here. I hope we can, some of us may be experiencing that sort of a lull, but let's rejoice today in, in the gospel. Because guess what? The, the glory of Christmas didn't end at the nativity. It didn't end with the birth of Jesus. A whole lot happened after that. And so my goal today is what Peter described. He said, uh, is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. That's our goal this morning. And so if the, the gifts you received, you know, sparked a little bit of happiness, or maybe they didn't if they let you down, um, hopefully we can have some, not just happiness, but enduring joy as we, we remember the glory of Christmas. I feel the need every Christmas season to offer people two reminders. Uh, these won't be new to you. Maybe they will, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, the first reminder is this. The birth of Jesus was not the beginning of Jesus, okay? Uh, we'll see that in our text today in the Gospel of John. So the incarnation, the birth of Christ, was planned from eternity past by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was prophesied in the Old Testament and realized in the New Testament. It was no surprise. It was planned from eternity past. So Jesus' physical birth was not Jesus' beginning. In fact, Jesus had no beginning. Okay, so that's reminder number one. Number two, Jesus did not stay a baby. There's something that's just not intimidating about a little baby, but Jesus did not stay a baby, okay? And so he actually, Luke 2.52 tells us that he grew in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. The New Testament tells us that he went on to accomplish our salvation. He lived the perfect life we can never live. He died the death we deserved. He, he resurrected. He ascended. Uh, so Jesus did not stay. I know, I know Christmas is the time we choose to celebrate his birth, but let's not disconnect his birth from what he did after his birth. Uh, Tim Keller said one of the great ironies of Christmas is that it's the one Christian holiday the world seems to embrace, yet its message is the most incomprehensible to the world. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians 4, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And we'll see in our text today, John emphasizes in the prologue of his gospel, he states that though he, Jesus, created the world, the world did not recognize him. Though he came to his own, his own did not receive him. Our text today is John 1, 14 through 18. Go ahead and turn there. It'll be up on your screen, but I'll be going back to the previous verses. So just keep it open in your, in your Bible. But our text today reminds us of this often incomprehensible message of Christmas, of the gospel. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, 
Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Yesterday, millions of people celebrated a holiday that points to a Savior that they do not know, that points to a gospel they have not received, they have not comprehended. And so my prayer today is that we'll be reminded of the glory of Christmas, be reminded of the gospel that goes beyond the simple birth of Jesus. We've received a Savior full of grace and truth. And so beyond the reminder of the incarnation, today I actually want to challenge you all of the truths of God's Word have implications for how we live. So as we talk about Jesus being full of grace and truth, guess what? That should impact the way you live your life. And so the last Sunday of 2020 actually challenged you, the congregation, to make it a New Year's resolution to be holy, to pursue holiness. By God's grace, many of you, most of you have done just that. And so this final Sunday of 2021, I'm also going to give you a challenge, and I'll give it to you now. Be full of grace and truth. As you've received grace and truth, now you are a steward, a vessel. You are a dispenser of grace and truth to a lost world that needs to see people full of grace and truth. They need to see Jesus. So that'll be my challenge for you. And also begin to ask yourself this question. Are you a truth-oriented person or are you a grace-oriented person? If you don't know, ask your spouse or your children. They'll be able to tell you. So you truth-oriented people, you love to study scripture, you love theology, you love rules, you love laws, but you're sometimes slow to offer forgiveness and grace. Um, now you grace-oriented people, on the other hand, you love forgiveness, you love freedom, uh, but sometimes you kind of relax on the rules, you see them as kind of legalistic, you know, the, the truth, the rules become kind of less important. And so sometimes grace people tend to ignore truth. And so think about yourself, which one are you? I would imagine most of us fall in the middle somewhere, but I'll talk more about that later on. So what would your life look like if you actually lived it full of grace and truth like Jesus did? How would that impact your marriage, your parenting, your, your work environment? How would it affect our disciple-making as a church to be full of grace and truth like Jesus? And so to be holy is to be full of grace and truth. And so grace and truth would be sort of the DNA of holiness, of, of believers. And so with that in mind, let me, let me pray for us as we... Get going. God, thank you for the freedom as always we have to gather to study your word without the fear of persecution. Thank you for the free access we have to it. You know, there's millions of people across the world that do not have access to your word, and we do. So we thank you for that. I pray this morning, help us to set aside distractions from, uh, from the day, from the weekend. Uh, help us to set our minds on Christ, the glory of Christmas, the glory of the, the incarnation. I pray that this often... Um, incomprehensible message of, God, of the gospel of Christmas would be comprehended by someone today that hasn't comprehended it before. I pray today that you would transform us by your word through your spirit, open our hearts and minds to the glory of our Savior who's full of grace and truth. Uh, pray you grant us a, a renewed understanding, a renewed appreciation of the salvation we've received in Christ, of your glory, full of grace and truth. And as we leave here today, I pray that we would be faithful dispensers of your grace and truth to a lost world that, that needs it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I would imagine yesterday if you read the Christmas story, uh, you probably read it from Matthew or Luke, 
Um, you probably did not read it from the Gospel of John. But actually, John also tells the Christmas story just in a bit of a different way. Instead of genealogies and Mary and Joseph and Nativity, he actually starts with some very deep, heavy, profound theology. And so in John chapter 1, we really have the, um, the Christmas story in a sense. And so um, the prologue of John's Gospel is probably one of the deepest, it actually hits on some of the deepest mysteries and paradoxes in Scripture. Namely, our Trinitarian God and Jesus, full of grace and truth, what we call the hypostatic union. Those are two of the deepest, most profound mysteries in Scripture. Let me just say this as an aside. If your theology has no room for mystery, you've got no room for God, no room for Jesus. And so the Christian faith requires us to hold these truths in tension. So a paradox is not a contradiction. A paradox is a seeming contradiction. You got it? And so think about some of the contradictions of, of the Christian faith. You know, to, um, to live is to die. The way up is down. The first shall be last. The greatest of all is servant of all. Scripture is full of these tensions, these paradoxes, and so we have to embrace those. And when we go to extremes, we usually go into heresy. And that's exactly what the church has done throughout history with this truth of Jesus being fully God, fully man. If we don't accept those things in tension, we drift towards one extreme, which really leads us into heresy. So keep that in mind. And so of all the mysteries, paradoxes in the Bible, John 14, excuse me, John 1.14 is probably one of the most, if not the most important paradox in the Bible, truth in the Bible. One commentator, William Barclay, said verse 14 may well be the single most important verse in the New Testament. So before I read verse 14, let's back up to verse 1. In verse 1, John says, In the beginning was the Word. So we know that the Word is the Son. And so we learn that in the beginning was the Son. So once again, Jesus, when He was born, that was not the beginning of Jesus. Jesus existed from the beginning. There was nothing before Him. As far back as we can go to eternity, Jesus existed. And then verse 3 says, All things were made through Him, and without Him, was not anything made. So not only was the Son not created, the Son is the Creator. He made all things. Through Him were all things made. And so here's what we know about the Word. Even before we get to verse 14, we know that He is God, God the Son. We know that He is with the Father, which means He and the Father are distinct. They're separate. Jesus the Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. So He's God. He's with the Father, distinct from the Father. And He's uncreated. He's eternal. So all this sheds light on this mysterious doctrine of the Trinity. God is one, one being in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. A whole lot more could be said about that, but now's not the time. So we get to verse 14, and John gives really the most shocking revelation he could have given. He says, And the Word, that is God, Creator, Uncreated, Eternal One, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father. That's shocking. That's a very shocking declaration. So this is how Paul explained it to the Philippians. Philippians 2, 6 and 7, he says, Jesus, who though, whom, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The Word became flesh is probably the most profound statement in Scripture. 
And so we need to realize the Word did, did not just appear to take on flesh. That's one of the heresies of, of the church past. You know, Jesus didn't just appear to be human. Jesus literally took on flesh. The Word became flesh. And that word flesh there, often uh, the word flesh has kind of a negative moral connotation in the New Testament. This here is just talking about Jesus' humanity. He became human. John expresses the full manhood of Jesus Christ. So the Creator is now fully participating in His own creation. Once again, a shocking statement. Here's a critical point. This has been sort of a stumbling block in centuries past with the church. When the Word became flesh, He did not cease to be God. So the Incarnation was not the second person of the Trinity becoming something else. It was the second person of the Trinity taking on an additional nature. So Jesus didn't transform from the Word into a human. He took on an additional nature of humanity. And once again, this is mysterious, profound stuff. But the fact is, Jesus is both fully God, or truly God, and truly man, simultaneously. He doesn't cease to be either one. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, when Mary kissed the face of Jesus, she kissed the face of God. The more you think about that, the more it blows your mind. And so when we celebrate Christmas, it's not so much the birth of a baby as it is the birth, the incarnation of God Himself. And that word dwelt literally means to pitch one's tent or to tabernacle. Matthew 1.23, the angel said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in a small manger in Bethlehem, the eternal Son of God became man and dwelt with us in really the most intimate way. And so Charles Wesley captured the whole wonder of the Incarnation as well known hymn, Hark the Herald Angel Sing, in that hymn he wrote, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. So, believe it or not, the incarnation was not the first time that God had dwelt with humanity. Go back to the Old Testament. God dwelt with Israel through His glorious presence in a tent, a tabernacle, later in the temple. And the Old Testament is full of what we call Christophanies, appearances of Jesus before we get to the incarnation. But the incarnation is so much different. This was not just an appearance of Jesus. This was Jesus taking on human flesh and staying here for 30 some odd years and accomplishing our salvation. And also realize this. So when Jesus ascended to the Father, guess what? He didn't just slough off His humanity. He kept it. Jesus permanently has His humanity. Jesus right now at the right hand of the Father is in His glorified human body. When Jesus returns, He'll be in His glorified human body. So Jesus exists fully God, fully man, eternally. It's an amazing reality. So here's why the incarnation is so critical for us today. As a result of the incarnation, God the Son becomes perfectly and uniquely qualified to be our Savior. We've studied that all through Hebrews. As C.S. Lewis put it, he, he said, The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. If you rewind through Hebrews, the writer says in chapter 2, verse 17, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest 
in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Chapter 4, verse 15, the writer says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is how Paul said it to Timothy. He said, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He said to the Romans, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Here's what all that boils down to. No incarnation, no salvation. No incarnation, no Christianity. That's how important the incarnation is. So the confession of a genuine incarnation is really one of the basic affirmations of the Christian faith. If you don't affirm the incarnation, let me tell you, you're not a Christian. And it's going to be blunt. That's what Scripture teaches. In fact, John says in 1 John 1, 4, basically, if you deny the full deity or the full humanity of Jesus, you're a false teacher. He says, verse 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, but this, by this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. He says in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 23, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So now let's get back to our verse. So verse 14, John continues, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Wayne Grudem defines His glory as the visible manifestation of the excellence of God's character. So in Jesus, God's glory is manifested. It's seen visibly. In Jesus, we see the actual glory of God. Of course, the Jews in the Old Testament got glimpses of that. Even through the law, they got a glimpse of God's grace and truth and glory. But Jesus is described as the fullness of God's glory, of God's grace. So the glory here is described as glory is of the only Son from the Father. And I'm glad we've set the context. Don't misunderstand that phrase to mean that Jesus like us, was born, and that was his beginning. Yes, he is God's son, but in a very unique sense. And so uh, what this phrase means is that, is that Jesus is God's son in the sense that he shares God's attributes. That's what this whole text is about, the fact that Jesus shares the attributes of the eternal God, God the Father. So in a sense, all Christians are sons of God, uh, but Jesus is a son of God in, in the most special, unique, one-of-a-kind sense. And that's really the theme of John's gospel. All throughout John, he points to that relationship. So here in verse 14, we arrive at this next phrase. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's define those two terms for a moment. So starting with grace, we often define as God's unmerited favor, which is a great definition. The word grace is used more than 150 times in the New Testament to describe all the riches we have in Jesus Christ. And really, grace is what separates Christianity from all other religions. And to some measure, all people receive God's grace. We call that common grace. But in the most specific sense, we believers have a much greater grace. Uh, what Ephesians 2 called, we're, we're saved by grace and in grace we stand. So John uses the word grace to refer to the generous work of God in sending His Son, which results in our salvation. 
And so according to one author, grace is Jesus taking the hell he didn't deserve so that we could have the heaven we don't deserve. He says, if you're not stunned at the thought of grace, then you don't fully grasp it or what it costs Jesus. He says, the worse we realize we are, the greater we realize God's grace is. And this author said, for some, human depravity may be an insulting doctrine. But he said, to grasp that doctrine is liberating. Why? Because when I realize that the best I can do without him is like filthy rags, according to Isaiah 64, it finally sinks in that I have nothing to offer him. Salvation, therefore, hinges on his work, not mine. What a relief to know that my salvation can't be earned by my own good works, and therefore it can't be lost by my bad works. It all hinges on the work of Christ. So we know that grace is available to all who acknowledge their need for it. You know, it takes humility to acknowledge that we aren't perfect. We can't save ourselves. We need God's grace. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we receive grace from God, and as we show grace to others, this is how we can define it. So grace, as we extend it to others, can be defined as an irresistible compulsion to give men more than they deserve, which springs spontaneously from the grace of God. Truth. So truth is a term rooted in God's faithfulness, His steadfastness, His consistency. Truth is essentially God's self-disclosure. So truth is really defined as that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. So truth would represent the way things actually are despite our feelings and whims. And so what's true is true, and what's not is not. For all of us, for all time, we do not get to define what's true and what's not. So Randy Alcorn said that we're so used to being lied to, so prone to self-deceit, that it's hard to discern what's true and what's not. He says our culture views truth as something inside of us, subject to revision according to our own growth and enlightenment. Scripture, however, views truth as something outside of us, which we can believe or not, but we can't change it. In other words, you and I can discover God's truth. You and I cannot create our own truth, contrary to popular teaching. We don't make our own truth. Truth is from God. And the fact is, every human heart longs for truth. Scripture commands us to walk in the truth, to love the truth, to believe the truth. And sometimes we, drew, we view the truth, the law, as something negative, but the fact is that the truth, God has put guardrails in place not to punish us, but to protect us. The truth is for our own good. John said in his third letter, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So God, full of grace, full of truth. So of all the attributes of God, why did John choose to elevate grace and truth. He had a lot of other attributes to choose from, a lot of different character traits to choose from. I think it's because grace and truth are connected to our salvation. Salvation comes by God's grace through the truth of the gospel. We're won by His grace, convinced by His truth. So apart from truth, we can't be saved. Apart from grace, we can't be saved. So hear this, Jesus didn't simply come to tell us about grace and truth. He is grace and truth. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, others had been messengers of gracious tidings, but he came to bring grace. Others teach us truth, but Jesus is the truth. He is that grace and truth whereof others spake. Jesus is not merely a teacher, an exhorter, a worker of grace and truth, but these heavenly things are in him 
and He is full of them. Christ has brought us grace and rivers and truth and streams, and the two rivers unite in one fullness of grace and truth. So if you're here today and you're searching for truth, then look no farther than Jesus. So Jesus is the truth that will set you free from your search for truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. If we get Jesus wrong, it doesn't really matter what else we get right. So going back to the Old Testament, we saw many glimpses of God's grace and truth, uh, but those were all simply foreshadows of the ultimate grace and truth that came in Jesus Christ. So what was incomplete in the Old Testament is now full and completed in Christ in the New Testament. In other words, He's the true sacrificial lamb. He's the true manna from heaven. He's the true scapegoat. So characteristics given only to God in the Old Testament are now giving to Jesus Christ in the New Testament, but in fullness. One of my favorite Christmas songs, one we sang earlier, Joy to the World. Here's one of the lines. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love. That's some pretty solid theology and truth right there. So Jesus always acts in the fullness of grace and truth. You think about this, He was full of grace. He welcomed sinners and tax collectors. He ate with them. He had compassion on the crowds when they were hungry. He helped little children. He healed lepers, the lame, the blind. He saved the criminal on the cross. Jesus was full of grace. Jesus was also full of truth. Uh, he condemned many of the religious leaders of their day, called them liars and hypocrites. He talked more about hell than he talked about heaven. Did you know that? Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. He called all those who would be his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. He prophesied judgment on Jerusalem for their unrepentant hearts. He obeyed the law, set the standards, and demanded everything from his followers, even their lives. So Jesus was all grace, all truth, all the time. Now it doesn't, it's a, it doesn't seem possible that one person can be 100% full of two different things. That's why it's a paradox. But Randy Alcorn in his book called The Grace and Truth Paradox, which I borrowed a lot from in this message, he says Jesus was not 50% grace 50% truth, but 100% grace, 100% truth. In other words, he didn't switch off truth, turn on grace. They were both switched on all the time. So what this means is that his grace is truthful and his truth is graceful. His grace is truthful. His truth is graceful. Think about that. I want to give a couple of illustrations. So John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. We're familiar with that story. And we think of that as a story of... of grace and it is you know if you recall the scribes and pharisees brought a woman to jesus who had been caught in adultery guilty they brought her to jesus and said the law of moses demands that she be stoned to death picking up in verse five this is verse four excuse me they said to jesus teacher this woman has been caught in the act of adultery now in the law of moses in the law of moses commanded us to stone such a woman so what do you say and jesus eventually said to them let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. So here's a woman who is guilty and deserves death according to the law, and Jesus extended grace. Where sin abounded, Grace abounded. But here's what I want you to see. I actually left off the end of verse 11. 
So Jesus ended this conversation with this woman by saying, go, and from now on, sin no more. His grace to her was connected to the truth. His grace was truthful. And so the fact is, grace never ignores our sin and our depravity. You know, Jesus didn't simply minimize this woman saying, that's not a big deal. He actually commanded her to stop it, to go and sin no more. And so as we know, any concept of grace that makes us feel more comfortable sinning is not biblical grace. You know, so Jesus did not lower the bar for this woman. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus elevated the bar when it comes to adultery. He says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say, don't look at a woman with lust. Jesus does not lower the bar. He has a standard of perfection. He doesn't lower that standard. And that would be very bad news for us were it not for the cross, where Jesus met that perfect standard for us. So through the cross, we're actually granted the perfection of Jesus himself. And the beauty of that is, when we fail to live up to God's perfect standard, we don't live in shame and guilt and remorse and grief, although that's what Satan would prefer. We can repent and ask for forgiveness and move on in God's grace with passion and confidence. And so we need to remember that, you know, we, uh, even though at the cross we're granted the perfection of Christ, that, that doesn't give us an excuse to say, well, you know, I've got Jesus' perfection. I don't need to be perfect. You know, I don't need to try. I'm going to fail, so why try? That defeatist mentality is really of the devil. We're commanded to be holy, to press on, to strive for holiness. But the good news of the gospel is that when we fail, we have the perfection of Christ granted to us. That's, some, that's good news. Randy Alcorn said this. He said, grace never ignores or violates truth. He says, a home full of grace is also full of truth because grace doesn't make people less holy. It makes them more holy. Grace doesn't make people despise or neglect truth. It makes them love and follow truth. Far from a free pass to sin, grace is a supernatural empowerment not to sin. Grace raises the bar, but it also enables us to joyfully jump over that bar. Any concept of grace that leaves us or our children thinking that truth is unimportant is not biblical grace. So the grace of God, the grace of Jesus is truthful, but also His truth is graceful. We think about Jesus laying down the cold, hard truth in the New Testament. It's often to who? Scribes and Pharisees. And so think about this. It's kind of interesting that Jesus came down hardest on the ones uh, who, whose doctrinal statement, if you will, was the closest to his. Okay, consider that. So the Pharisees were the Bible-believing people of Jesus' day. And so in Matthew 23, Jesus basically calls out and rebukes the Pharisees for a lot of reasons. He calls them out for not practicing what they preach, for being hypocrites, for being full of themselves, uh, for shutting the kingdom of God in people's faces, for making disciples of hell, for majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors of God's law, for being selfish and stingy, for neglecting their hearts, for being deceived. Uh, he called them whitewashed tombs. And in another place, he called them a brood of vipers. You hear that? Well, that's, that doesn't sound very graceful. You know, how, how is that graceful? Well, consider this. Jesus could have simply ignored the Pharisees. That was an option, you know, just kind of work around them and their, you know, what they're doing, what they're teaching. Uh, he didn't do that. Or he could have actually addressed them and said, you know, hey guys, um, y'all are way off in some major areas, but man, I appreciate your dedication to the law. You even add to it to try to make it better. Man, I appreciate y'all's dedication to discipleship. You're making disciples of the law. 
Man, I appreciate all the good works y'all are doing for others. Those are very helpful. You know, he, that's not how Jesus handled it. Although that's how you and I might have handled it. And so Jesus actually laid down the cold, hard truth on the Pharisees. And here's the deal. Had Jesus ignored the Pharisees or affirmed them on their legalistic, hypocritical path, he would affirm their path straight to hell. But he didn't. Jesus loved even the Pharisees. So the fact is, Jesus laid down the truth to the Pharisees, but it was also full, full of grace. You know, Jesus loved the Pharisees. He wanted them to repent and find salvation and forgiveness, and some of them did. So Jesus loved even the Pharisees. He wanted even the Pharisees to receive the, the true gospel. And the fact is, had he not called them out, he would have allowed them to lead others straight to hell. Jesus would not have allowed that. So Jesus, in love and grace, confronted them with the truth of the gospel with the hopes that they would repent and lead others on the proper path of salvation, not the path to, to hell, as he called it. You know, I think we're less prone to call people out today. We want to be sensitive. You know, we don't want to offend anyone. We want to be politically correct. Uh, we want to be nice. I listened to what Randy Alcorn said about uh, being nice. He said, we've redefined Christ-like to mean nice. But he says, by that definition, even Christ was not Christ-like. He confronted people in sin. He raised his voice. He threw tables. He called people snakes, blind hypocrites, and whitewashed tombs. So he says, if we don't talk about sin and hell because we want to be nice, we're trying to be nicer than Jesus. He says, we want to be tolerant today in the name of love, but it's not actual love. He says, Alcorn says, going to an eternal hell is not in anyone's best interest. How dare we, in the name of false grace, tolerance, withhold true grace from those Jesus came to rescue? So how much do we hate someone if we know they're in sin on a path to hell and we don't confront it? I mean, that's the fact. We know people, friends, family members, co-workers, we know that they're on a path that's leading straight to hell. Will we confront that or will we not? Obviously, it's true love is full of grace and truth. So once again, Jesus loved the Pharisees, so he hit them with the cold, hard truth. All right, so his truth was graceful, his grace was truthful, and here's where all this kind of hits home for us. So not only is Jesus full of grace and truth, not only did he extend grace and truth to those that he encountered while on earth, but listen to what the text says next. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You back up a couple verses. In verse 12, John says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I love the text says, not just grace, but grace upon grace. It's that, the idea of relentless, unending grace, eternal grace. You know, like waves upon the ocean that just keeps coming, keeps coming. That's relentless and so those who receive Jesus receive grace upon grace, the full measure of grace. This is how Peter described that reality in 2 Peter 1. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Obviously, all things would be grace and truth. So in Christ, we receive saving grace and sustaining grace. In Christ, we have both the truth that sets us free and the truth that tells us how to live. We have the fullness of grace and truth, everything that we need in Christ. I think if we really believe that, we would live a little bit differently. So here's the challenge for us today. 
the grace and truth that we have received from Christ, we are to extend that to others. We are dispensers. We're vessels of grace and truth. And we don't do that to perfection like Jesus did, but that is the goal. And let me remind you that God's will for all of us is to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So as we read here that Jesus is full of grace and truth, guess what? God wants us to be full of grace and truth like Jesus. And so the fact is, God's grace and truth came to you and me because it's headed to others. A great commission. The world needs to see Jesus. And so I go back to that question I asked you at the beginning. Are you a truth-oriented person or a grace-oriented person? Or, or neither. Or maybe it depends on the circumstances. Um, I think we tend to habitually embrace grace or truth based on our personality, our background, our upbringing, church, family. I think we're kind of predisposed to kind of lean towards one or the other. Some people hate grace. Some people hate truth. Jesus loves both, so we can't undercut either one without undercutting Jesus. And think about the mistakes that are made in marriage and parenting uh, and relationships and discipleship all because we fail to properly display grace and or truth. So we need to realize that Jesus is equally grieved by truth suppression and grace suppression. Truth twisting and grace twisting that equally grieves Jesus. So for all you truth-oriented people out there, let me remind you, truth without grace is fundamentalism. It's legalism. Truth without grace breeds anger. It breeds cynicism. Truth without grace breeds a self-righteous legalism that poisons the church and pushes the world away from Christ. You say to the world, here's the standard, you don't meet it, they're repelled by it. So truth without grace is simply fundamentalism, legalism. So the fact is, if we've actually experienced and encountered, received God's grace, we should be quick to extend that grace to others. Grace frees us from the bitterness and resentment of resenting people for not measuring up to a certain standard. Grace frees us from that. So all you grace-oriented people out there, let me remind you that grace without truth is sentimentality. Grace without truth breeds moral indifference and actually keeps people from seeing their need for Christ. So when we speak truth, we speak the language of Jesus. When we speak lies or withhold the truth or twist the truth, we speak the language of Satan. So it's not grace or truth. It's grace and truth always. So here's another question for you to consider. If, you, if you're not really sure where you're on that, um, this may shed light on where you stand. So think about how do unbelievers feel about you? Do they hate you? Do they like you? Here's what Alcorn said. He said, something's wrong if all, believe, if all unbelievers hate us. Something's wrong if all unbelievers like us. He says, if we accurately demonstrate grace and truth, some will be drawn to us and others will be offended and repelled, just as they were by Jesus. So when we offend everybody, it's because we've taken on the truth mantle and neglected grace. If we offend nobody, it's because we've taken on the grace mantle and have ignored the truth. Think about the apostles of the early church. How was it that people 
knew the apostles were Christians. What gave them away? I think it was because they were full of grace and truth. In fact, Acts 4.33 tells us, with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus to the truth, and much grace was upon them all. So they were known by their fullness of grace and truth. They boldly proclaimed the truth, the resurrection of Christ, the truth of the gospel, to the very ones who killed Jesus. And as they did that, that they were full of grace. Alcorn said, truth was the food they ate, the message they spoke. Grace was the air they breathed and the life they lived. So the world around them was never the same. So some were offended by them, and some were saved by the gospel message they presented. So the fact is, for us, we're united to the same Christ that they were. We've also received the fullness of grace and truth as they did. And so when people encounter you, uh, what's, their, what's their experience? They recognize you as a follower of Christ based on the fullness of grace and truth that, that is in you. To be clear, it's not within our, our natural ability to show this grace and truth, but here's what one commentator reminded us of. He says, The fullness of grace in Christ is the fountain from which all of us must draw, for he is ready to flow to us, provided that we open up a channel by faith. So as we abide in Jesus, obey his commands, uh, we have the fullness of his grace and truth flowing through us. It doesn't originate with us. It originates from God. It flows through us to others. So the incarnation reminds us that all people had to do to see God was to look at Jesus. And we're reminded all people need to do to see Jesus today is to look at us. That's a, that's a heavy stewardship. Alcorn said, for better or for worse, the world will draw conclusions about Christ based on what they see from us. A grace-starved, truth-starved world needs Jesus full of grace and truth. So I ask you, what does the world see when they look at you? If we fail the grace test, we fail to be Christ-like. If we fail the truth test, we fail to be Christ-like. If we pass both tests, we're like Jesus. So in conclusion, verse 18 reminds us, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So once again, Jesus brings the invisible to be visible. Jesus is the explanation of God. Jesus is the answer to the question, What is God like? You know, think about Jesus' encounters with his disciples, uh, John 14, 7 and 9. You know, the disciples tended to be a little bit thick-headed. So listen to what Jesus says. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and, is it, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to them, Have I been so long with you, and yet you still have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. So we sometimes, like the disciples, can be a little bit thick-headed. Jesus reveals the Father, full of grace and truth. John said later in his gospel in chapter 20, the reason he wrote the gospel is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I ask you today, have you believed? Do you have life in his name? You know, is Christmas just a sentimental holiday? You gather with family and go to Christmas parties, listen to music? Or is Christmas a holiday you celebrate your Savior? And if I haven't been clear, let me just state in a nutshell this, this message, this glorious message of Christmas, of the gospel. Of course, the message starts with a problem, and that problem is sin that has separated us from God. One theologian said it this way, God's perfect holiness and our sinfulness 
combined to create a breach we cannot close. That's the problem. We've sinned against the Holy God, created a gap that we can't close. And the problem with that is that dooms us to eternal punishment. And that is humanity's greatest problem. They're separated from a holy God. And so the good news of Christmas is that God so loved the world, He sent His only Son to bridge that gap from a holy God to a sinful humanity. So the message of Christmas is that Jesus alone can restore us to God. He alone qualifies to be our mediator because He alone is fully God, fully man. He alone lived the sinless life you and I can never live. He alone died the death that you and I deserve for sinning against the holy God. He alone rose from the grave, defeating sin and death and hell. He alone ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. He alone qualifies to save us from eternal damnation, destruction. Jesus did the impossible to save us. I love what one author said. Listen to this. The life of Jesus is bracketed by two impossibilities, a virgin's womb and an empty tomb. Jesus entered our world through a door marked no entrance and left through a door marked no exit. Jesus did the impossible, the miraculous, to save us. And so not only did Jesus ascend to the Father through a door marked no exit, this Advent season remind us that Jesus will return. And when He returns, it will be in His glorious humanity. Listen to one commentator's comparison between Jesus' first coming and the second coming that we await. He says, the first time he came, a star marked his arrival. The next time he comes, all the stars of heaven will fall and the whole of heaven will collapse. The first time he came, wise men and shepherds brought him gifts. The next time he comes, he'll bring the gifts, the rewards for his people. The first time he came, there was no room for him in a small inn. The next time he comes, his glory will fill the entire earth. The first time he came, just a few attended his arrival. The next time he comes, every eye will see him. The first time he came as a helpless baby, the second time he comes as the sovereign king and judge over all. When Jesus Christ returns, you and I will be judged. All in Christ receive eternal glory, all outside of Christ, eternal destruction. You got a problem with that? Then take it to God. That's what he teaches. So I ask you, have you received this grace upon grace that John talks about? Have you repented from your sin, confessed Jesus as Lord, Savior, and Master? Are you following Him or, or are you not? Where does this text find you today? Are you in Christ or outside of Christ? So the beauty of this whole text is it points to the grace of God. So if you are outside of Christ and are humble enough to admit your need for a Savior, your need for Jesus, ask for it. Ask for God's grace and you shall receive it. Referring to God's grace, Charles Spurgeon said, how can you hesitate about receiving it if it pleases God for you to partake of it? You may go with high expectation of comfort since Jesus himself is honored by your going to him. He obtains glory by disrupting, excuse me, distributing of his fullness to empty sinners who, when they receive grace, are sure to love him. Then how can you think him reluctant to bestow the gift which will increase his own glory? God increases His glory by granting salvation to those who ask for it. Why would you not want to ask for it? God promises if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a graceful promise of God. So as you consider that today, I'm going to close in prayer. The band's going to come. I want you to really think about um, 
this glorious reality that not only is Jesus full of grace and truth, but we have received it, and now we're called to dispense it to others. So let's pray. God, thank you for the incarnation. Thank you that you have made salvation available to sinful humanity through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that in him the, the glory, uh, the fullness of your grace and truth is displayed. Thank you that from him we, we receive the fullness of grace and truth. I pray that uh, for those of us here today that, uh, that we have received it and that uh, as we leave here we would operate in the fullness of your truth and grace, that you would give us uh, wisdom, give us discernment as to when to show truth and grace. And we know there's a world out there that needs to see the fullness of, the, of our Savior, of a Savior who loves them and will save them by his grace according to the truth of your gospel. So I pray that as we leave here, when the world sees us, they'll see Jesus. We'd set our minds on, the, on obedience, on the great commission, on the great commandment, that we would be found faithful. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.